Welcome to Show Cause, the official podcast of the University of Memphis School of Law. I'm Ryan Jones, the Director of Communications at the Law School, and I'll be your host for this podcast as we attempt to examine and explain some of the legal and cultural issues at play in the world today. On today's episode of Show Cause, we're highlighting our upcoming law review symposium titled The Path of Least Resistance, Our Marginalized Communities Are Targeted by Harmful Infrastructure and Land Uses, which will take place on Friday, February 16th here at the Law School. You can register today online via the Law School's website. Just visit our homepage and click the banner at the top, where it'll take you to a registration page and show you the full day's agenda and CLE information. The event's free to attend and is offered both in person and online. In this episode, you'll hear from symposium editor Ashley Gazikowski, who'll give listeners a brief overview of the symposium itself, how she was inspired to select this topic, and why it's important both locally and nationally. She'll also fill us in on some of the interesting topics that will be addressed throughout the program, as well as a listing of the amazing attorneys, environmental experts, law students, activists, and politicians she has on deck for the day. Ashley brings a lot of wide-ranging experience to the table as a member of our law review. She grew up in North Dakota before moving to Texas to join the Army, and during her service was an X-ray technician. She moved to Memphis to attend Memphis Law, and in addition to service as the Volume 54 Symposium Editor, she's Executive Director of the Student Bar Association and a student attorney in our Medical Legal Partnership Clinic at Labonner Children's Hospital. We're also joined by one of the attorneys participating in the symposium itself in Sarah Stewart, an attorney at the Memphis Law Firm of Birch, Porter & Johnson, where her practice focuses primarily on employment litigation and counsel. Prior to joining Birch Porter in 2018, she served as a law clerk to the Honorable Bernice B. Donald on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and the Honorable Cheryl Lipman in the Western District of Tennessee. She's also a graduate of Rhodes College and the University of Memphis School of Law, where she was managing editor of Volume 46 of our Law Review. Sarah's taking part in a panel during the symposium focused on the Bihalia Pipeline, where participants will discuss the community involvement, eminent domain issues, local ordinances, and federal permits involved in stopping the construction of the Bihalia Pipeline through a South Memphis neighborhood. She'll be joined on that panel by Representative Justin J. Pearson, the Tennessee State Representative for District 86, Amanda Garcia, an attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center, and George Nolan, the Director of the Tennessee Office of the Southern Environmental Law Center. At a time where environmental and water issues are cropping up across our country daily, such as the water-related crisis in Flint, Michigan and Jackson, Mississippi, as well as the ongoing saga of various oil pipelines across the country, this symposium could not be more timely, especially in a city like Memphis, which has such a rich history of environmental-related activism in court cases, as well as some of the most highly regarded drinking water and aquifer in the country. If you're at all interested in issues like water access, housing, wastewater, and other infrastructure that impacts the well-being of communities, as well as the disparities in how low-income communities fare in these situations, I hope you'll give this podcast a listen all the way through, and even more importantly, sign up for the symposium itself. This is Show Cause. All right. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Show Cause. I'm excited to get started with today's episode where our focus is going to be on an, our upcoming law review symposium. This year's title is The Path of Least Resistance, How Marginalized Communities Are Targeted by Harmful Infrastructure and Land Uses. 
I have our symposium editor here with us, Ashley Gazakowski, as well as an attorney here in Memphis from Birch Porter and Johnson, Sarah Stewart. We're going to go into a little bit of depth here about uh, the overview of the symposium, some of the topics that we're going to address. I'm going to have Ashley talk a little bit more about some of the panels that she's got lined up, some of the interesting topics. And then we're going to have Sarah speak a little bit about the panel that she's going to be participating in, particularly about um, the Bahalia Pipeline project that happened here in Memphis. We'll get into a, a little bit of detail about everything, and then we'll let Ashley talk a little bit more about the things that she's excited about having. Um, and hopefully this will get some people interested in attending either virtually or in person. And I'll mention this again at the end of the episode, but if anybody uh, would like to go ahead and register after you listen to this episode, visit the law school's homepage at memphis.edu slash law. And there will be a banner at the very top with the law review symposium information. You can click on that, see the page with the full slate uh, and the agenda for the day, the panelists and the registration and CLE information can all be found there. So thank you both for joining us. Ashley, um, I'd like to start with you. If you want to give us a little bit of background about how you chose this topic and uh, how it's relevant both inside and outside of Memphis. Yeah, um, so I'm not from Memphis. And so when I was selected to be the symposium editor, I really wanted to bring back the symposium edition to the community. Um, and so I was informed of a podcast that went really in depth into the Bahalia pipeline. And I listened to that and I, I just knew um, that that was what our topic needed to be this year, because it showed how community is really important as a whole and how when you have the community to back you with the legal advocacy, you can really make a change for your community. Um, and so I really think that this is relevant locally, obviously, because it happened right here. We have, you know, Sarah was an attorney that worked on these cases with those in the community. Um, and we had a lot of other people who were here in the midst of the fight from the community, from attorneys, other activists. Um, and so it made, it was a huge impact for Memphis. And I think that it was a good example setting for other communities um, nationally and how they can make a change. You've got um, a really good lineup of topics and speakers here, um, both nationally and locally. So in addition to the Bahalia pipeline, um, can you talk about some of the other issues that you're going to address throughout the symposium and um, maybe a couple of the uh, speakers or topics that that really jump out at you that you think readers would be interested in? So um, if anyone's listening, you know, what what types of topics, what what areas are you going to really focus on that people might find interesting? So one um professor that we have coming from Vermont Law, she is going to be speaking on how um, activists are criminalized. And one of the topics that she will be talking about is Cop City in Atlanta. And so that's really big on the news right now. And I think a lot of people would be interested in that and how those activists are um, criminalized for protesting um, the issues that are happening there. Great. I, I know you'll have other stuff on, you know, water access, housing, wastewater, and 
other infrastructure that impacts the well-being of communities, both uh, here in Memphis and, and in other regions. You've got folks from the federal level. You've got um, participating law students, a law student from, uh, I believe, from the University of Miami School of Law. Um, I think you've done a really good job of, of getting professors um, from across across the spectrum um, on the panel that we've talked about with the Bihalia Pipeline that Sarah is participating in, you've got Representative uh, Justin J. Pearson, um, who I know was also instrumental with the Bihalia Pipeline project and organizing the community around that effort. So I think you've really got um, something that's interesting for attorneys, community members, laypersons that are interested in environmental uh, activism and preservation across the board. So I think it's it's a wide variety of topics that um, people can really look at and, and get a lot from, even if they, whether they're law students or, or community members or attorneys. So uh, I think it's exciting. And uh, on that note, one of the most exciting aspects of it, I think, does deal with the Bahalia Pipeline project that we've touched on. And that's where I'd like to go into uh, talking with our second guest. We've got Sarah Stewart here. As I said before, she's an attorney at Birch Porter and Johnson. She's also a former managing editor of the University of Memphis Law Review. I'm excited to have her on. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So for those that aren't familiar, for people that um, maybe aren't from Memphis or just aren't familiar with it uh, more than in passing, can you talk a little bit about what what this Bihalia Pipeline project is that Ashley and I have both mentioned? Um and um, why it's such a, a perfect fit for this symposium. Just uh, a little bit of background on it first. Starting in 2020, towards the end of 2020, residents of a South Memphis neighborhood, a historically Black neighborhood known as Boxtown, um, started to receive offers and get notice um, that a Bihalia pipeline, which was a subsidiary of Valero, um, was going to build a high pressure crude oil pipeline that would connect two existing crude oil pipelines and cut directly through Southwest Memphis. To be clear, if you look at a map of the project, this was not actually the most direct route between these two projects. And part of the efforts to create this crude oil pipeline involved by Halia needing to get essentially easement rights to build this pipeline through a number of already developed areas, including residential neighborhoods, including from private businesses, including across some streams and ponds and waterways that were controlled by the federal government and the state government and the right-of-ways that were controlled by the city of Memphis. It was a complicated conglomeration of effort to get enough right-of-ways to build this through Southwest Memphis. And the residents of Boxtown started showing up to some community meetings about this, these efforts. And, and two women in particular, Kizzy Jones and Kathy Robinson, became very involved in attending these community meetings and learning more about them and, you know, talking to landowners who's, um, who had been approached about these easement rights. And where I came into this project was in about January, 2021, when by this point, 
Kizzy and Kathy had connected with Justin Pearson, who had recently graduated college in Maine, and he had found himself back in his hometown of Memphis during the pandemic, like many, many people, you know, moved back home and was had connected about what was going on in the, this neighborhood that they had grown up in and um, that their families lived in that is a really interesting historical place in the city of Memphis overall. And one of the things that had happened is I think that the residents of Boxtown had really become energized over, you know, why their neighborhood, why was this pipeline coming through their neighborhood with Valero and the Southern Environmental Law Center had gotten involved. And so we kind of picked up with a few of the landowners who had really held out, who had had eminent domain lawsuits filed against them. And when this first occurred, you know, I think a lot of people were like, how can a private crude oil pipeline exercise the power of eminent domain? Right. 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 So, um, you know, that was really kind of the scope of the project and what was going on and and what it led to was this really interesting coalition of people who ended up getting involved from all sorts of different aspects, grassroots aspects, legal um, a lot of different legal strategies with the SELC, who who really were the legal heads of this. My firm got involved, and um, and ultimately the project itself was canceled. Um, and about in July of 2021. So really, you know, and I'm I don't recall precisely like when Bahalia started picking up these properties. It happened over a period of time, but the the fight really. Rel- was won relatively quickly. I think, you know, most of the pressure led by Kizzy, Kathy, and Justin, who are now known as MCAP. They started as Memphis Community Against the Pipeline. They're Memphis Community Against Pollution now. They've brought our kind of environmental efforts now. Um, you know, heralded this among their community. And, you know, a lot of great connections and relationships formed to form this really incredible coalition that that really we think led to just the complete withdrawal of this project um and so now there will be no high pressure crude oil pipeline running through uh you know a neighborhood inhabited by thousands of memphis residents so i'm curious about a couple of things that you touched on in there um one you you said if one were to look at a map it's obvious that this would not be the most direct route for this the 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 companies to run their pipeline through so best educated guess why why did they choose this route as opposed to another one um and that that leads me to 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 ask has this particular neighborhood had detrimental effects before from nearby industrial pollution or um other characteristics of their neighborhood um in in impoverished areas so one of the um, kind of like launch points and one that's really tied and energized people for for this effort is that at one of these community meetings that I was talking about, one of the representatives from Bihalia actually referred to this as the path of quote unquote least resistance. Um, and, you know, that's become really a, a probably unfortunately for them, a real like kind of rallying cry for 
these efforts. And I know is one that's being used in the symposium as well. Um, and, and what does that mean? Right. You know, I think the Bahia pipeline folks probably later would have said least resistance because they were trying to affect the least number of homeowners as possible or something to that effect. I think mm. it's later, but the reality, the direct path would have gone through Midtown, East Memphis and Germantown. And their racial and socioeconomic demographics of that path is very different than the racial and socioeconomic demographics of Boxtown. Mm -hmm. And so I think how that comment felt to that community, and I certainly don't want to speak on their behalf, but I, as I understand is, you know, we can resist, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, you know, we're, we are this, this land and land ownership in this neighborhood in particular has a really interesting history that I, I strongly suggest there's some really amazing articles in MLK 50 about the history of Boxtown that I'd recommend anyone go read. There's a lot of incredible journalism done around this time about Boxtown and its history and these efforts, um, particularly by that news outlet. And, um, the homeownership was something that, you know, was so meaningful to, to these residents particularly. And, um, and so I think, and, and not only, you know, where they called the path of least resistance, but they have a history of environmental being victims of environmental. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, are in a lot of, that's in a lot of this amazing journalism that was done around this time is is the effects of some of these other environmental factors so there are a lot of pollutants in that area mm -hmm. you know um i'm certainly not i'm not the environmental lawyer on this team so you know certainly if you're at the symposium i think you'll be much better heard from amanda garcia mm -hmm. and at the southern environmental law center but um I, you know, there's a heightened risk of cancer in this community. If you, um, we had these rallies during this time um, down in the neighborhood and, you know, the most well-known of which one was attended by Al Gore. And to hear the stories of folks whose aunts and grandmothers and, you know, cousins and uncles had all died of cancer young, it's just... You know, even from a narrative perspective, such a higher rate of of environment negative environmental factors um, that you know I think it was just really felt like not another, and you know we're not going to agree. And at least the way that this would have to have been constructed required some consent by folks, right? Because you can't. I mean, you they tried to get easements without much consideration. They got many easements without much consideration um and they tried to exercise eminent domain to get the ones they couldn't get you know there was a not just against the individual landowners that scott crosby and i represented but also there was a long holdout corporation named Kusan hiko that mm -hmm. one of my other partners porter field represented and that was pending in another circuit court and um you know, that was concerned about the effects of their business. And, you know, I can't really speak about all the reasons that they wouldn't agree, but there were holdouts from the private sector as well that really led to this 
um, an ability to construct it because you, you know, there had to be a path that connected to create this. And so, yeah, I think the location factor ended up being a huge heralding point, mm -hmm. um, including for public officials um, who, who really stepped up during some of this as well. I'm curious if I, if you can speak a little bit about like, what, what do you think the, the people with the Bihelby pipeline, like, so traditionally, right. I'm not an attorney, but correct me if I'm wrong. Eminent domain is something typically carried out through the government. Correct. So why would a private corporation think that they can utilize that tool to, to get what they want? Uh, so really there was this landmark Supreme court decision in 2005 called Kilo versus city of new London that essentially permits private corporations to exercise the power of eminent domain on behalf of the state. So not to get too legalistic, but this is a legal podcast. So I'll, I'll tell you what our argument was, which is that in response to Kilo, the Tennessee state legislature passed a number of bills limiting eminent domain power because as we all know, a lot of Supreme Court decisions say, well, here's our decision. And if the states, you know, disagree with it, they can pass their own legislation to, you know, like many issues to deal with this at a state level if they believe in higher property rights. And so there are these statutes in Tennessee that, um, in, at least from our position, were passed, clearly passed in rebuttal to Kilo and, you know, really emphasize the um, Tennessee state interest in private property rights, which is, you know, sort of a typical state interest of our state. And in our opinion, make it clear that eminent domain, how that public eminent domain power only transfers to private corporations for certain public need. And that public need includes things like you have a private utility company that, you know, gets to exercise eminent domain to run your gas to your house. And, and interestingly enough, what Bihali ended up relying on a lot is this use of the word gas in all of these statutes. And, you know, our interpretation was that the intent of the legislature on including that type of language was for utilities, um, for, for direct services to individuals, not crude oil that would be put, you know, moved through outside of this community yeah. to be produced or, you know, refined, refined outside the state of Tennessee. Cause I think the refinery this was going to is actually, um, in Louisiana. Um, and so, you know, that was really what our legal case ended up being about was we we had these extensive briefs in front of Judge Felicia Cor Corbin Johnson, basically over the right to take. So we were having a, you know, a big legal fight over whether or not they had the right to take generally um, and had a lot of success in that court on those arguments in a manner that sort of led to a resolution that, you know, they weren't going to fight down this particular path anymore against the specific landowners we were representing. Okay. Um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an interesting aside that, you know, this was, like you said, it came together pretty quickly, but from beginning to end, I remember hearing about it, hearing about the rallies. And then in terms of, you know, a legal case, it came to a, re a resolution you know, fairly quickly, like you said, like what, like two years, two and a half years. 
um, not even that long, a year, which is, is crazy to me. Um, but you know, I think Memphis has a history of some of these grassroots led efforts, um, tackling large, you know, large, you know, legal cases, whether it's the, the interstate that was supposed to go I 40 that was supposed to go through Overton park in the heart of Midtown. Um, and, and then you have this, which obviously it's not a Supreme court case, but it is a grassroots effort against a major, you know, multinational corporation. Um, so I think it's, it's an interesting trend here. Um, also a Birch Porter case. <laughs> also a Birch Porter. Very, very good. Also, you know, one of your founders, I know, big into environmental preservation in Lucius Birch. So, you know, the right firm for the right cause. Um, I wanted to ask you, Ashley, um, building a little bit on, you know, what, what Sarah had said about um, the corporation wanted to go through this uh, particular area of town because it's the that offered the least resistance. Um, so is there, are there any, are there any um, topics that you're going to touch on in your symposium from other presenters that deal with, um, you know, uh, marginal, other marginalized communities that are affected by the, you know, poor quality of the drinking water in their environments or other environmental concerns? Um, and, and if so, what are, what are some of those other ones that might touch on some of these similar topics? Um, yeah, so Professor Andre from um, who is currently actually studying environmental policy um, after teaching for a while, she is writing a paper and going to be speaking on the Apalachicola um, area and how NEPA doesn't always um, NEPA, which requires agencies to look at um, the community effects of environmental issues. Um, and how their agency approach is often um, inconsistent. And so it historically leaves underserved communities um, in a legal blind spot for environmental inequity. And then we also have the two speakers from the University of Miami uh, are going to be talking about specifically, they have data with their community that they are speaking about from Florida. Um, so they'll be able to really drive in the needle on how certain communities are impacted. On this topic, I'll just say two other speakers on the panel that are coming to speak on the Vihalia Pipeline from the Southern Environmental Law Center, George Nolan and Amanda Garcia. This is their bread and butter work. And it's in their art were a lot of other strategies related to the defeat of the Vihalia pipeline that related more to some of these federal, state, and local permitting issues that SELC was really involved in and, and including a federal lawsuit that was brought about some of the federal issues that were raised by the permitting related to this project. And, and since that time, um, have assisted in some other issues related to the environmental factors that are affecting this neighborhood. Um, so one, this is kind of out, outside the realm of what we we're speaking about generally, but I'm curious, you know, another big environmental thing related to water that has come out of the Mid-South is anything to do with, you know, like the, the greater Memphis Sands aquifer, um, did anything to do with the Vihalia pipeline project tie in to the, the people that, you know, try to fight to represent the Memphis Sands aquifer and how, 
How did that come into play, if at all? Yeah, I would. I am remiss that I have not yet mentioned Protector Aquifer, who is an essential partner in this coalition and remains an essential partner in this coalition for environmental justice. And, you know, of course, we've talked a lot about what created a rallying cry in Boxtown. Well, what really created a larger community interest in this is not just the environmental and racial components of this from a direct level, but the potential that this could affect our water. I mean, right, that's right. You know, there's nothing this community loves more than our than our water. I'm drinking from a plastic water bottle at the moment because we've been under a boil water order this week. But you know, it's it's a, it's a very opportune time to talk about water in our community. For anybody that's listening to this later, we've just gone through like 11 days of hard, a hard freeze and no pressure in our pipes and a boil water advisory that was just lifted. So, not there's no better time to talk about the quality of water here. Yeah, it's it's the time to remember how important POA, Protector Aquifer, is for, for our city because, you know, we take for granted the fact that, I mean, I buy a case of water when we have a boil water order, and otherwise we have incredible drinking water mm -hmm. in the city from a natural water source, and, um, you know, POA, I think, really helped create a lot of community interest in this issue, and that organization really heralded a lot of the more, I would say, like, I don't want to use the word lobbying because it's cer they're certainly not acting as a lobbying organization, but like just really a lot of the connections in the city to get a lot of energy around the potential negative effects that a high pressure crude oil pipeline could have on our aquifer. And, and that is really, you know, one of those other technical, you know, issues, but um, I think they did a good job of of making it accessible to a layperson while they should care about right. something that, you know, why should someone in Germantown care about something that's happening in South Memphis? Um, yeah, and, and the so, realities yeah. of the potential risk of harm. And, yeah. you know, that was a big motivating factor for our clients in defending these eminent domain rights, too. I mean, you know, the community is very protective, not just, you know, Memphis and Boxtown of of this water source that we all have this great benefit from. And, and I do think that was where a lot of the support at the local levels of government came from too, was this concern about, you know, pipelines don't last forever. Pipelines have accidents, pipelines have leaks, pipelines, mm -hmm. and what, ha what happens when that happens, not if it happens, when it happens, mm -hmm. and, you know, the water is a huge part of this and, and, you know, it, if not one, you know, was certainly, I think one of the big reasons why this particular like kind of method of environmental injustice ended up getting so much momentum so quickly. Well, I mean, this isn't exactly in the same ballpark as some of the, the, environmental related topics that are being touched on the symposium, but it's for anybody as, that's curious about going even further down the water related rabbit hole of court cases from Memphis and the surrounding area. I mean, you could, the, the, the one that pertained to the, um, the aquifer and the, the water rights of Mississippi versus Tennessee from the U S Supreme court, um, about whether Mississippi was entitled to what, um, uh, I guess using our, the aquifer that runs underneath Tennessee and Mississippi. And if we owed, if the state of Tennessee owed them, you know, endless amounts of money for 
drawing upon that offer to recharge ours, but it's a whole other, you know, who knew that there was so much water related activism and court and environmental cases that come out of, of Memphis, but that's another interesting one. And it was related because, um, you know, part of this pipeline was going to have to go through North Mississippi. And there were a group of landowners that were trying to mirror these efforts in Mississippi and oppose these eminent domain cases in Mississippi. But the the issue they faced was that Mississippi had no similar laws to Tennessee that were passed in response to Kelo. And so they really didn't have a rebuttal for this general potential public use standard um, that a private corporation can exercise the power of a minute to me. So this is really kind of one of those like microcosms of the effects of a Supreme Court case. So um, that kind of dovetails into my next question about, you know, dovetailing into other scenarios. And maybe this question doesn't go anywhere, but can the success from this carry over to other environmental challenges and other marginalized communities. Like, you know, everyone that's listening has probably heard something or other about water crisis in Flint, Michigan. Um, People here in the Mid-South probably remember several years ago where there was a water quality crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, not too far down the road. Um, I don't know a lot about those um, situations in detail, but is there anything that can be learned from or drawn from uh, to help other marginalized communities facing water-related environmental challenges? You can say no. You can say- It's a good question. I'll tell you, um, you know, I'm not an environmental lawyer and, um, you know, and so I think I'm certain there are, but I'll tell you what my biggest takeaway from the success of this fight was, was the importance of having kind of a no holds bar hit them from every place you can coalition. Um, I mean, there were permit appeals in the state. There were, you know, we were challenging permitting in the city. We were engaging with city council. We were, um, you know, engaging in the community and having community rallies to get public grassroots support. There was a lot of journalism that was supporting this and kind of spreading this message and these ideas. If you've ever heard Justin Pearson give a speech, I would pretty much agree with anything that that man says for the rest (laughs) of history. He's one of the most inspiring public speakers of our generation and in this community. Um, And, you know, getting national figures involved and interested, um, massive social media campaigns, hitting you know, kind of various communities in Memphis with the things that pull in those communities, filing a federal lawsuit about some of the federal issues, defending eminent domain cases with private lawyers who, and, you know, we're doing this pro bono, you know, by getting that civil right to counsel issue kind of addressed by, by having, making a tremendous difference in what we're sometimes being granted as default eminent domain orders because the landowner didn't appear, you know, instead having lawyers. Right, right. It was really, and I'm, I'm, there's no way I'm hitting everything. Um, it was Which is re- why people should go to the symposium to learn the full, <laughs> the full scope here. Yeah. Yeah. And we had this like, and uh, I've, 
I've kind of dropped out of this like bigger coalition a bit because my like role in this fight um, ended a while back, but um, we had these weekly coalition meetings of people from kind of all the represented organizations, Protector Aquifer, SELC, um, MCAP, attorneys, you know, that really were just like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? How are we aligned? How are we benefiting each other? You know, and elevating the voices of the people who were actually doing the work was a big focus of this coalition. And I think really helped create, um, you know, some faces around this and, and not forgetting who, who originally fights for this, which is, was Kissy and Kathy and then, you know, and later Justin. It seems like it was an important piece because the, from, you know, from the research I did before this, looking into it, it seemed like. That area of town, that neighborhood specifically had a lot of like governmental mis or a lot of mistrust towards the government, local, state, federal, whatever it may be. And so I think looking from the outside, it seems like having the representatives from that neighborhood, having their voices heard, having the different partnerships and coalitions um, listen to the neighborhood and and the law firms and everybody be a part of that conversation rather than just taking it and running away from it, uh, running away with it from the neighborhood. Seems like it was a, a real key to the success of building the trust of the community and having, having everybody's voices heard so that things should come out on the positive. I hope so. You know, I think, I think that's what we all intended to be. Well, like you said, like having representative Pearson be one of the voices for that, I think, um, you know, I don't know if it if it if he took it to the state level and it helped in with the legislature. I don't know um, if everything was more localized than that, but it definitely helped here locally. Um, I mean, I think it got a lot of attention uh, just with his with his involvement. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Um, well, it's, it's I, there are a lot of other topics that come out of the symposium. Is there any other little interesting tidbits that either of you wanted to um talk about uh, as it pertains to the Bahia pipeline panel topic or or any other things that you Ashley that you wanted to plug to make sure you know that people wanted to tu- tune in for um I mean I think one of the the things that caught my eye was the um you've already touched on it a little bit but you have um a professor talking about basically the response to the criminalization of environmental activism um I think that that sort of thing is is in the news a lot um, a, across the board. So I think that that's really interesting. I've never really thought about how that's become a trend more and more these days. So that's that's something that I I think that would be interesting here, particularly because, like Sarah had mentioned, the um, you know the protect your aquifer folks are you know specifically looking at environmental activism related to water protection and things like that. So I think that has a really interesting local angle that could pertain to it. Um, especially with the like the political environment that we find in Tennessee a lot of the times um seeing how people react to you know continued environmental activism on that front and if uh, the, I'm interested to see if, if that is something they talk about uh, more about their from their home institution I think that speakers from Vermont um or if that carries over to things here locally so um, any other stuff that you want to give a shout out to that people can look forward to that they, you know, they definitely want to sign up and attend again, you can do it, vir- you can attend virtually or in person. It's free to attend. Uh, there's, there's CLE that is, um, 
uh, a part of the event that's free as well. I think uh, so far it's been approved in Tennessee and in Arkansas and uh, pending approval in Mississippi. So there's there's multiple reasons to attend, you know, knock some of those hours out here at the beginning of the year rather than rushing up in December to uh, scramble and get them all done. But Ashley, anything else that you'd like to add that people should look forward to? Um, I might be a little biased as I have spent a lot of time and effort, but I think that you should be excited about the entire thing. <laughs> um, but, we, you know, I think it's really exciting to be able we have different people coming from you know, nationally to talk about different issues across the country. But then we also have um, someone coming from the EPA to end so that it will be an interesting perspective to hear federally what they are doing Mm -hmm. um, in the face of these, you know, issues and how they can be addressed so that things like what happened um, in Bahalia with the Bahalia pipeline line in Boxtown mm-hmm. don't keep happening and these communities don't keep getting taken advantage of um and so I think that that will be a really interesting perspective um but off of our earlier conversation about the community um I really wanted to just if you want to learn more about the community and the Bahalia pipeline more than what we have talked about today the broken ground podcast by the SELC really dives deep into the community um, part of the Bahalia pipeline. And I think that that's really important and it gives a lot of background to the topic as a whole, but especially the panel. And, and then you would see the perspective of where I came from and why I thought that this symposium was really important. Right. Well, I'd like to thank both of you again for coming on and talking to uh, talking to me and and giving our listeners a little bit of a of a, of a a cool little tease into the topics that we're going to talk about at this upcoming symposium. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, it's going to be on Friday, February sixteenth. Starts at uh, eight thirty here at the law school, one North Front Street, downtown Memphis. Um, again, free to attend. Go to the law school's website at memphis.edu/law. Um, click on the Law Review Symposium banner at the top. It'll take you to a page with all the registration information and the full day's agenda. I think it's going to be a really interesting day. Um, this is just a, a, a tiny little bit about one of the topics that will be addressed in more depth that day. But I, I think it's been really interesting to learn a little bit about more and give people an idea of what they can expect um, to learn. And um, I, thanks to you both. Um, Ashley, best of luck. I know it's stressful now, but you're going to come out the other side of it. Sarah, thanks for joining us. It's awesome as always to talk to you. Um, I appreciate you both. Thanks for having me. Thank you.